Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurton and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in the, in the shed today on a very hot day, actually, hence if I'm looking more than usually slightly kind of boiled, it's not just the intellectual rigour of the discussion, it's also the temperature. Um, I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed today by Dr Chloe Beale. Um, anyone who's ever heard any one of these before knows that I'm really keen that the person I'm talking to introduces themselves rather than me trying to do it for them. So, Chloe, over to you. Introduce yourself, please. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, as you said, I am Chloe Beale. I'm a consultant liaison psychiatrist based in East London in Hackney. Um, so I'm mainly sort of based in the emergency department um, and uh as part of that, I'm also a suicide prevention lead for the mental health trust that I work for. Um, I uh, am a member of various Royal College of Psychiatrist groups, um, the liaison faculty, the eating disorder faculty uh, and the patient safety group. Um, and through all of this, um, my, uh, I've developed quite a strong interest in law and particularly um, in, in capacity law um, and even more niche is the the law surrounding capacity and suicide so so I have sort of two twin interests of capacity law and uh, suicide prevention and these have have sort of melded to become to become one so I mean I think you and I have met each other really because of that that melding of interests and obviously I'm, I'm a lawyer you're a clinician so I'm I'm super interested in hearing your take on on well, framing the issue to start with, and then your take on, as it were, what people get right, what people get wrong. I fully appreciate we only have twenty minutes, but let's let's at least try and you know your definition of the issue, and then and then your your take on on where things go right, where things go wrong. Mm. I think so. I think that my interest in capacity and suicide is sort of evolved over time. So initially, I, I got very interested in the in the case of the widely reported case of Kerry Walthorton, you know, quite some years ago now, um, which as many people will will recall from the re reports, was of a young woman with a diagnosis of personality disorder who. Um, uh, who ingested antifreeze um, in order to end her life and was judged by clinicians at the hospital to have capacity and she was she was allowed to die. Um, and so for years I've been fascinated by that case and I've had my own views and interpretation on sort of both clinically, legally and ethically, in fact, about what happened there and what maybe should happen in those sorts of circumstances. And so for years, I would, in my role as liaison psychiatrist, I would talk, teach uh, emergency medicine clinicians about capacity and suicide and would always use that as a teaching case. And we would have really fascinating discussions where often clinicians would sort of start out, go, well, absolutely, it's black and white. If you've got capacity, you know, this has to happen, that's right, and would actually end up with a far more nuanced understanding and also hopefully an understanding of their own, how their own biases and prejudices and reactions might have fed into that um, when it comes to patients that they might feel a certain way towards. So that was a principal interest, and I do a lot of work with emergency medicine and air ambulance and pre-hospital medicine and things like that, um, teaching about assessment of capacity in those sort of very fraught emergency scenarios where somebody wants to die. Um, but actually what has sort of evolved parallel to that is a, is a, I don't know if it's a newer phenomenon. I think it probably is re in relative terms, or I think it's a, it's a new way of 
demonstrating a problem that has always been there, um, which is in terms of how we as clinicians, as a society stigmatize people who are suicidal as this emerging phenomenon of people being told predominantly by mental health clinicians that you have capacity for suicide, therefore I'm not going to help you. So to be clear, this is in most cases, I think people who might be suicidal are often asking for help and are being told by clinicians in what I think is a, a gross you know, misinterpretation of the law, um, not to mention what's clinically appropriate. Um, they're being told, well, yeah, but you've got capacity to kill yourself. Therefore, I'm not going to help you because it's your choice. Um, and I can't remember when I first sort of noticed this. And it must have been that I was noticing it cropping up in patient notes written by other clinicians. Um, and I, yeah, and I, I couldn't find very much written about it. Um, until I found eventually that, that survivors and patients and carers were writing about this online, but not in, you know, not in journals. They were publishing, uh, you know, sort of blogs and writing on social media. And I think it kind of arose from there. And so, so it, and, then, and then with the Mental Health Act review, um, of course, that came up in the Mental Health Act review. And, and I remember reading that and thinking, sort of, thank God that actually I'm not just making this up I'm not just seeing this myself this is I mean not thank god because obviously it shouldn't be happening but this is a thing and thank goodness people are recognizing it um and in fact at the time I was doing a master's in medical law um and my my interest and my dissertation was on analysis of the use of mental health capacity law in general hospital settings which included, because it seemed so important, a whole section on suicide and the law in emergency settings. Um, and there isn't, there wasn't a great deal written, and I really did a, a lot of research. And there's, there have been a couple of things that, that you and, and others that you work with had written, but really not very much. And so I think then it was last year, I kind of reached out to you and invited you um, uh, and our colleague Ellie to, um, who you introduced me to, to collaborate on a talk to the Royal College of Psychiatrists International Congress. Um, and I've just been talking about it more and more. So it's, it's sort of gathered speed and I get invited to talk about this a lot. And I write about it a bit. And what is emerging more and more is that this is something that patients and carers and survivors and activists have been talking about for a long time. But I think we in the profession have refused to acknowledge it or to see it's even happening. I mean, there's so much to unpick and unpack and it's, it's uh, as ever with these talks, these are, can just really be a snapshot and get people kind of interested and, uh, and challenged. I mean, can I just sort of pose one really direct question to you because I'd really like your take on it is, I mean, what is the test or what are the component parts of a person having capacity to decide to take their own life. I mean, you're, you're saying, clinicians are saying you've got capacity to take your life. I mean, what do they think this person is, you know, understanding, retaining, using, weighing? What, what, what is it which is going on in there? Because, I mean, if you're thinking about mental capacity acts, you know, what, what is that? Well, that, see, that's really interesting and disturbing as well, because this also speaks to our really I think overall very poor use and understanding of mental capacity law in the medical profession um, because 
I don't think in most cases an actual capacity assessment is taking place. Um, and if it is, it's certainly not being documented. Um, and don't even get me started on clinicians making judgments on capacity for any decision who haven't even documented an assessment. Um, you know, I think that there's a conflation a lot of the time between has capacity and there's no reason to doubt the presumption of capacity. Um, so lots of people will write has capacity when actually what they mean is, you know, I'm not, there's no reason to challenge the presumption of capacity, but I would argue that when it comes to something so serious as a mentally disordered person's ability, you know, decision to take their own life, I mean, you, you can't possibly rely on the, on the presumption of capacity in that scenario. So I don't think that there is even a test that is being applied, in all honesty. Which I think is, I, I mean, I have to say, I, I mean, I'm not the clinician, but I do enough wandering around different zones. I'm probably, I would probably agree with you. Um, and I wonder whether one of the things is, actually, if one had the discussion about that, I mean, a bit like we just had the Supreme Court have the in a hardcore discussion about the components of capacity to make decisions about sex, you realize actually there's some really interesting normative elements in there. And one might drill down into and say, well, actually, if we think, what is the relevant information you have to be able to understand use way? I mean, even assuming anyone's thinking about it, I wonder if you, I mean, you do get into some pretty deep waters there. I mean, including, does anyone ever have that capacity? Which I think might be one question, and could it could you ever sensibly say anyone has that capacity in a crisis situation? Which I definitely agree with you. At the minimum, you've got to think about this. You can't just go, well, there's a presumption of capacity. But I think there's there's something fascinating there. I mean, I think the other thing the other thing I really wanted to just sort of tease out with you, whilst I have you, and I'm just I'm so glad I have you for this limited period, even just for this limited period of time, is I feel that there may be a particular group of people in respect of whom you have capacity is raised quite often. Am I, am I as I were, wrong in feeling that? If I'm not wrong in it, can we sort of name and identify and at least bring that open and have a bit of a, you know, kind of transparency no. on that? No, you're not wrong. Of course you're not. Um, so I think it, it, you know, it will happen to all sorts of people. But I think in the main, this is happening to people who either have a diagnosis of personality disorder or who are perceived to act in a way that we associate with a diagnosis of personality disorder. Um, so it's it, as, as well, this is nothing to do in my view with respecting people's autonomy um, or you know, any, of the, any of the principles of the act. It's, it's punitive. Um, it's saying it's that's why I said it's it's a new it's a new way of phrasing a very old phenomenon. Um, you know we've had things like you know it's a it's a sort of perhaps a, a updated version of positive risk taking um, and yeah and all, all this we have lots of phrases that we tend to apply to a certain group of people and it says so much more about us as a profession than anything else. Um, it's people that we perceive, whether we want to admit it or not. And when I say we, I'm talking sort of broadly as the profession. Um, you know, it, it's people that are perceived to be time-wasting, manipulative, too dependent on services, needing to take responsibility for themselves. Um, and lots of things which, 
you know, the ideas of being able to take responsibility and not getting too dependent are not necessarily wrong concepts in themselves, as is, you know, capacity is, is not a wrong concept in itself, but it's the way it's, it's twisted and warped to fit our biases. Um, so I think it can happen to lots of people, but I think probably my suspicion is that who it's happening to most is that group of people with that label. And I think that that's probably as well, predominantly young women. Um, and in fact, um, there's been, I think it's really important to draw people's attention to a, a recent piece of research because there's no grant funded research. There's no, no academics have, have been doing research on this, um, but there's a recent piece of um, independently published survivor led research by uh, Ren Aves. Um, about this exact thing. And I know that you'll share some links at the end. And this yes. was carried out on, on Twitter users who have, have had this experience of being told you've got capacity to kill yourself. Um, and I think it's part of a, a growing amount of evidence and perhaps not, not a traditional academic evidence that's really supporting how much this is happening and what it, and what it really means. Yeah. I mean, I think Renee's piece is really important, and I will definitely, I, I will definitely link to it. Not least because of the way in which she explains why it is she's in a space where this is the form of research which is having to be conducted. I mean, I think you're right. There's something really important there. I mean, I would just put a plea in if there is grant-funded research. Almost, what I'd almost most want to be seeing, purely from my own perspective, is research which is almost ethnographic and is watching the interaction between let's say psychiatrists, because probably that's who we're predominantly talking about, psychiatrists and the individual on the other end. Because I think part of it, sometimes I would almost be wanting to do that and then debrief with the psychiatrist about what they thought they were saying. And then the person who was being assessed as to what it was they thought this person was telling them. Because I, part of me wonders occasionally where there's, is a conversational, I mean, I may be being generous. There's a conversational mismatch between what the person, the professional thinks they're saying and what the person on the receiving end thinks they're receiving, which obviously if there's a mismatch, it's a problem, we need to work it out. But it's, yeah, no, I think it's, there's just so many. The very fact is there isn't grant-funded research, I think is, is speaking volumes. Yeah. Uh, what I do just want to tease out with you so we don't ourselves degenerate into a pit of existential despair is in the kind of last five minutes or so is, well, okay, Let's, let's take it that this phenomenon exists. And, and I, I should say, as the legal advice of the Mental Health Act Review, you know, we, I definitely had some part, I'm very happy to put my hand up and say, I had some part in that section of the report you were mentioning, which is saying, hang on a minute, before you push towards purely capacity-based legislation, be very careful to take into account the fact it could be, this is the phrase I've used, not the re report. You could weaponize it. Yeah. But, so that's that. What do you think? And I think this is almost me saying, please tell your fellow professionals, you know, what would you be wanting them to do to guard against the kind of stuff we've just been identifying? You know, how is it that you can engage in that, in that interaction in a way which is not punitive, say, which is a really stark term you used? Yeah, I think I would ask people to, I mean, this is something a psychiatrist, and, and I think actually it's perhaps not, in, I think in terms of aiming this sort of education, actually, yes, yes, psychiatrists and totally psychiatrists. And I am, you know, the first person to stand up and criticize my profession. But it's also other professionals working in psychiatry. And you have to remember that the majority of 
emergency crisis mental health assessments are carried out by psychiatric nurses um, who are getting far less in terms of CPD and access to the sort of educational materials that psychiatrists are and and also are the most likely to end up getting finger pointed and blamed in you know in the event of a death so I think have far more reason and I'm not excusing it but far more reason to be scared and defensive in their practice Um, and you know I'm not saying all nurses and many more than I'm saying all psychiatrists I'm not I'm certainly not saying oh it's not psychiatrists it's all the nurses it's it's not I think we need to be more much more generous in our Mm -hmm. in in how off how much how the education and and the training and the CPD opportunities that we offer nurses but that's a separate issue um so I, I think that in, in psychiatrists, we get lots of, you know, we have a, a certain amount of uh, training in psychoanalytic theory and, and psychotherapy that we have to go through as junior doctors. Um, and you get taught a lot about defences and defence mechanisms and transference and counter-transference. And I think that we, we're quite good at talking about it, but probably quite often forget it. But I think that perhaps other professionals don't get as much training in it. So I think the first thing is to go back to those roots and examine your own counter-transference. So what is your reaction to this patient? because that's what what it's about. So I would say that if you're ever, ever considering declaring that someone has capacity for suicide, ask yourself what you're really really saying. Have you documented a really, really robust watertight capacity assessment and probably run it past trust legal would be my advice. Um, Is it an emergency scenario? Because part of the time I was like, why are you even considering why is why is capacity even the question you know we have other things we have the mental health act at our disposal um which i'm not saying that we should detain everybody under mental health act who's suicidal and of course this is happening in people who are often being rejected for for care and treatment but why is your first thought capacity why are you leaping to this what are the stages you've gone through first um and to really think about it why are you leaping to capacity why have you not sort of first of all thought about what's going on here what does this person need why do I not feel that I could or should give them what they feel they need because of course sometimes they'll be the case of course we don't always give patients exactly what they think they want um and sometimes that's right and sometimes that's wrong but why am I why am I leaping to capacity what is what is my proposed management plan with this patient if I'm convinced that capacity is the right, you know, is the right framework to be going through, have I documented a really, really good capacity assessment? But also, yeah, I mean, in terms of mental capacity act, okay, that what I also what's the decision? Because yeah. as clinicians, most of the time, uh, the decision that the act will, will relate to for us is care and treatment, right? You know, we're not mostly not sort of welfare and financial in, in the clinical setting. So it's care and treatment. And in what way is someone making the decision to go off and end their own life a care and treatment decision? It's like, why are we even talking about capacity here? What's that got to do with anything, really? If you've got someone who's already taken steps to end their life, like the person who turns up having taken an overdose or ingested antifreeze and they're either consenting to or refusing treatment because of course we tend to only think really about capacity when someone doesn't want the thing that we want them to have 
Um, but yeah, capacity would quite reasonably come into your consideration there. But yeah, how is someone's decision to end their life in any way a care and treatment decision that you have to consider under the Mental Capacity Act? Yes, I mean, I think I, I'd also, I, I agree. I might frame it as another, well, one other alternative way of framing it, and I don't know whether this resonates with you, is this is a really good example of a question which is extremely silly to think about in the abstract. Like it's a person's capacity to take, you know, you could have a fascinating three-day seminar on abstract capacity, you know, in the abstract, can one ever have capacity to take, decide to take one's own life? You know, and then you bring up the ancient Greeks who people think, well, of course they did, and you would pride them for choosing the manner of their death. And all very philosophical, all very interesting, but not a very sensible, from a legal perspective, question to think about in the abstract. As you say, you are responding to a situation. What is it that you need to get this person's consent or, well, are you asking this person for consent or refusal? If so, what is the consent to? And I think one of the, I mean, what I found so both fascinating and incredibly disturbing about the phenomena you've been describing and our work together is of course, this is in a way the complete opposite to the situation that most people were worried about in relation to the Mental Capacity Act. Because what people were worried about is they're just, doctors are gonna go around to find people lack capacity and do what they want. This is completely the other way around. And you could at one level, I mean, I, I sort of final thought for you, just, just sort of small challenge for you. At one level, you could see, actually, this is people really taking on board and internalizing the real principle of the Mental Capacity Act. You know, who is it for us as doctors to impose our views on other people? You know, is that, is that no. a, <laughs> <laughs> because because actually it is us as doctors imposing our views on other people you've got people coming to us and saying help i don't feel safe i don't feel i can keep myself safe i want x y and z and we're imposing our view that you have capacity so you're not going to help you you know away you go um so i and i think probably the root of the problem is that as a profession as a medical profession we're just not very good at not imposing our views on people um, you know, we are still a paternalistic profession. And we've got a hell of a long way to go in in writing that. Um, and you know, I hope I hope we can get there. But uh, yeah, I think unless unless you do some really proper work from the absolute beginning of everybody's training in any branch of any healthcare profession on stigma and bias and you know poor attitudes towards people unless you really really make that you know it's far more a core part of the curriculum than you know some of the stuff that I learned in medical school that I'll never remember again you know or, or never need to know again I mean I can still remember what the bladder histology looks like but I don't remember ever being taught really apart from kind of the odd tokenistic sort of communication skills seminar really being taught about these issues and like I loved law and ethics but I think I had like one lecture a year um and until this you know these concepts about treating people like autonomous human beings becomes absolutely core instead of a sort of wishy-washy adjunct for the people who probably want to be psychiatrists not you know and, and even then it's just it's I don't know that I can see it changing um which is probably yeah rather cynical and <laughs> well no but I think you well I think 
you've laid down a real, I mean, you've laid down multiple challenges. And I thank you for doing that. I think you have also laid down for people watching going, how can I think about, how, how can I think about this? You provided some tools for people to think about it. And I do think there is a, there's a real challenge out there to funding bodies to please could you find ways in which to fund research from people in zones where, you know, it doesn't lend itself very naturally to an RCT, say. I mean, effectively, if, if an RCT, a randomised control tile here got through, it would be incredibly unethical. So it's how yes, one... I think that would struggle, struggle with an ethics committee with that, I but think. It, it should do. But I mean, it's how one <laughs> captures some of that space and how one captures. And I, it, and I think you've also thrown down a very interesting challenge about how you train. You know, how you do you train by supporting people to go, you're trying to do the right thing? Or do you train by telling people, you know, beating about the head? Is there a kind of, you know, happy medium? But Chloe, thank you so much, as ever, with all of my conversations. But yeah, I actually have to say, even with particularly this one, there is just so much more I'd have liked to dig into. But I do try and keep them broadly to 20 minutes. I will put a link to uh, Renee's paper. I'll also put a link to anything, you know, there's at least one paper I've written which may help frame some of the legal aspects. And I, I know there are also things you've written which I will link to. So if people want to dig off and know more. But thank you and so I'll, much I'll for your time. Sorry, and a shout out as well to Lucy Series and her excellent recent blog post, which just encapsulates the issues perfectly. Um, so yeah. yeah, a link to that as well. I'll put a link in. So thank you so much, Chloe, for your time. No problem. Lovely to see you.